Welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the works of J.R. Tolkien. I'm Aaron. And I'm Clara. And we will be the crazy cast of characters who guide you on this journey. And speaking of crazy cast of characters, that is what we will be discussing this week. Aaron and I read the Valaquenta account of the Valar and Maiar according to the lore of the Eldar. And I'll tell you what, it is just a character a sheet. <laughs> yeah, it's uh we're, we're, we're even less plot than last time. Yeah, if 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 you you know didn't believe that was possible, well, yeah. believe it. Yeah, what to say to sum up the section? Basically, it is Tolkien introducing us to the members of the Valar, which are the Aenor who descended to Arda to create Middle Earth. Sounds simple. <laughs> but yes, right. Yeah, there, there's 14 of them. So that immediately becomes more complicated, I suppose. But only what, eight of them are important? Yes. Nine if you count Melkor, but somehow... We don't. We don't. No, he got bad thrown guys, out. Bad guys don't count. Anyway. But yeah, so it, it is a weird uh, interruption into this story like we have this creation story and then suddenly it's like okay now we're gonna step back and introduce this cast of characters to you i don't know i was i admit i was pretty bored the first time i read through this <laughs> yeah it's weird it's really a strange section and it's always felt like a strange section and i don't know that it ever will not feel like a strange section i think it's important mm -hmm. especially because you know, by chapter three of the Silmarillion, Tolkien is just like throwing 700 different names at you. Half of them are changing. It's actually pretty helpful, but it's not like a part of the plot. It doesn't help suck you in at all. When I initially read it, I truly did not know what to say about it. The second time through, I think there's like- The second like... time through, you had some good thoughts. <laughs> well i retreated into like questions of form as as is my habit um, when confronted with something that i'm like what to say about this <laughs> is it doing something formally weird um and the answer is kind of it, because i the more i thought about it, the more i thought of it as sort of a kind of a frame narrative um not in the traditional sense but it's it's similar to what a frame narrative does right as it sets up this you know this is the lore of the eldar this is the what the Eldar have written about the Valar and about this creationist. So it kind of sets up the Cimmerillion as this like found manuscript, I guess, in a, in a way that like the first section does not like, it's just a story. Mm -hmm. And we don't, you know, we don't know sort of who the writer of that story is, I guess, for right. lack of a better word. And I actually had this similar thought, not in quite as coherent of a way, but at the beginning, um, like I'm glad you brought this up because at the beginning of the section Tolkien does something that he's gonna continue to do throughout we'll see it in chapter one actually again where he will basically retell what he's already told this first section these first two paragraphs of the Valkenta are basically a summary <laughs> of what happened in the Ainulindale <laughs> previously on the Cimmerillion <laughs> basically um, and I think that's interesting that you brought brought up like this is like the lore of the Eldar because it sort of 
is maybe Tolkien's effort to remove himself as the author and kind of give these credentials as found tales rather than tales of his own, you know, devising. It's also complicated too, I think, by the fact that like his son Christopher is putting this together. Mm -hmm. So there's a part of me that wonders like, had Tolkien assembled these two sections, would they have looked the same or would there have been differences? And obviously we can, I, I mean, maybe we can know that for the manuscripts, but but I don't, I haven't looked at the manuscripts, obviously, so I can't ascertain sort of what decisions, you know, Christopher was making, but it is interesting, like, if this is deliberate on Tolkien's part to sort of retell, I mean, it does have its echoes in, certainly in the Christian um, New Testament, where you sort of have the Gospels telling the same story, but different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have multiple creation stories in the Bible. Um, right. So, I mean, there's a precedent for this, but but yeah, I, I always wonder like how much Tolkien actually intended to like do this retelling here or how much this is sort of a result of having these these manuscripts that Christopher is tasked with assembling. And I mean, you can't really kind of cut out that retelling and still have the rest of Aliquin to make sense. So like, it's just interesting how much this, this book kind of relies on or not relies on, but asks us to think about intentionality, I think. Mm-hmm. You have some notes here about Homer and I'm curious uh, about that. Yeah, so I was thinking about sort of how this section echoes some of classical myth. Um, and I was thinking about particularly the Odyssey, I guess, mm-hmm. but the ways in which, and I guess this is true of the Iliad too, but the ways in which the Valaquent is really working hard to bring sort of these lofty right god figures or demigod figures however we want to think about them and bring them into the human sphere so kind of making these phenomenon into something concrete um, and mm-hmm. perceptible like we can look at them they have characteristics that we identify with as, as being sort of human-like right like there's these qualities that they have that just grounds them sort of in our reality in a similar way that the gods in the classical stories are kind of brought in or the demigods in the classical stories are brought in um, there's always this kind of effort to make them a part of the material world in a way that I don't think we get within sort of the Judeo-Christian myth as much. Obviously the Messiah of course does that, but um, I think there's a a much more, a much greater intentionality here where you have this sort of strong effort to, yeah, to make the valor real and to make them a part of the world, um, to make them very human. Which I think is so interesting when he talks about how they, you know, they put on the raiment of earth, meaning mm-hmm. they kind of became human, but they don't know at this point kind of what elves and men are. So like, what is what do they actually look, you know, how do they know to make themselves look quote unquote human or humanoid in a way that would be familiar or appealing to elves or men? is very interesting to me you know did they just guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean just somehow do they know from the song right maybe they know but they just don't know when elves and men are coming it's kind of right vague but it is interesting or maybe they had a different form and like can appear differently once they know kind of what their expected form should be right 
yeah because it wasn't clear to me can they like kind of they can like kind of take it on and and put it you know take take it off and put it back on again is that sort of the from what i understand it it's within their power Mm -hmm. to change form maybe not all the time but if necessary okay and i know like it's just i think olmo like just doesn't do it that often right isn't that like he's always like because he's so he's alone he's alone all the time. he's alone in the sea and he's so terrible yeah. to behold but like nobody really sees him very often yeah. i mean no one sees any of these valar very often but yeah i mean i guess the Maiar do but, but yeah, yeah like the, the the elves and the men are not really encountering them yeah so it's much. it's curious that you know like you said tolkien is trying to kind of humanize them but how did they know how to humanize themselves who can say not us not us no we're asking a lot of questions here and we don't have answers but that's okay yeah i mean it's uh well it's such a strange like i feel like we keep saying this but it is such a strange section and yeah and I, I still don't quite know what to do with it in terms of all the foundation work it's doing. Like, I get that it's introducing this cast of characters, but I feel like it has to be doing something more than that mm-hmm. on some level. And I'm not 100% sure what that is yet, um, but, but yeah. it seems to be kind of laying this larger cosmological foundation. I do think that's probably part of what it's doing. I mean, we get sort of the, like the creation cosmology in the previous section. And then here we sort of have a more concrete understanding of how the cosmology works within the framework of Arda, which we'll talk about, I think in the next episode, sort of what we mean when we say Arda versus Middle Earth. But I do think in a weird way, this establishes that, but it's kind of odd because he's only doing it through these kind of character descriptions. It also, the section does establish a lot of relationships, mm-hmm. which become important. Like we find out that certain Valar are related to others, which is also so strange because if they're all created from Iluvatar, right. And like his thought, how does, how is he determining who has familial connections and who doesn't? Like, aren't they all his children? Yeah. And the other strange thing too, is like, they, correct me if I'm wrong, but they then themselves don't really have children. They don't. Right. Uh, one of them, one of the Maiar okay. does. Okay. We'll but the Valar. To, we'll get to that. The Valar do not. Yeah. Okay yeah yeah so we we, yeah it's interesting that we have this kind of like start of a family tree that just ends then Mm -hmm. like there's no which is also different than the classical myth too where you have sort of the gods are always kind of i mean zeus famously uh or infamously is always fathering he's always like i'm gonna disguise myself as an animal and um you know assault someone and have a child with them um which we don't have here perhaps because yeah um, perhaps because of tolkien's own sort of (laughs) uh sexual squeamishness um for lack of a better phrase um but like it's just not you know it's yeah i mean it's just it doesn't seem to be part of this sort of cosmology he's establishing like there is this family tree idea with Louvatar and the valor but it stops there 
Mm-hmm. And then there does seem to be kind of this pretty sharp jump down to the Maiar. And then like, there is this sort of hierarchy that he's establishing here, but it's not, they're not all kind of intimately related, I guess, in the mm-hmm. same way, if that makes sense. Like there's, yeah. there's larger gaps. So um, there is a little bit of like the great chain of being kind of thing happening here. Um, although he's not like and the rocks are at the bottom so at least we don't get that that deep into sort of uh, middle earth yet but not yet yeah but no you're right and I'm wondering about these relationships now I'm kind of thinking about them and I wonder if we were to reread this section if they're more like intellectual relationships Mm -hmm. I mean you see there are three of the Valar that are siblings that are kind of operate in the same sphere in terms of like what their quote unquote powers are. And so I wonder if that's sort of how the relationship is established is how they're related in terms of like, you said like the power hierarchy, like Manwe and Malkor are brethren and they're the two most powerful. Is that why they're brethren? Perhaps. Perhaps for Tolkien, it is, right? It's not like a, it can't be a like genetic connection because that wouldn't make any sense. So there has to be something else that connects these two. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I do wonder if it's like levels of power. So I wonder if that's sort of the way he's establishing these like familial, everyone can see the air quotes I'm doing right now on this audio media. Uh, but I wonder if that's how he's kind of establishing these familial connections. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that is a really good question. Cause right. There is this, like the relationships aren't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. They're just not like as, cons- they're not consistent in a way that I think we would expect. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like, it's not like, Oh, here's mother and daughter. Here's siblings. Here's father and child it's like yeah it is much more association like associative it's like oh Mm -hmm. these two have this particular sphere or these spheres that are related um or levels of power that connect them but there's not yeah it's not like a a family hierarchy in the way that we right normally kind of plot one out and they're all siblings right there's no Mm -hmm. there's no you know mother son father daughter father you know there's none of that they're all siblings which also kind of I think is interesting because it does sort of establish them all on the same level like you don't have you know a father who would presumably have like power over you know a son or Mm -hmm. a daughter a sibling is hopefully sort of an equal which I think is very important yeah they are kind of level in terms of power in one sense but then he does establish this like hierarchy within that then where he's like you know Manwe was the one that understood Iluvatar's purpose the best so he's mm-hmm. sort of like the favorite I guess yeah of, of Iluvatar and then you know um of course like so there, there is this kind of effort I think to to establish that if they aren't if they are equal sort of in a demigod way there are ways that their relationship to to Luvatar and also to the world differentiates mm-hmm. them, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I think it's interesting, the one that's the most powerful is the one who understood Luvatar yeah. the best. Like yeah. that, I think alone 
is very interesting. You know, it's not necessarily the one who is the strongest, but the one who has kind of the intellectual framework to establish the vision that they had. It's very, seems very Tolkien to me, like power in terms of physical power is not what is right. like lauded here. I do think it's interesting if we talk about like creation, you know, and kind of the Valor's purpose here, which again, oddly enough, is like not laid out in this section, which you mm -hmm. think it would be, you know, their purpose is to create the world. And it's actually, if we look at like power and creation, the female Valier actually have more creative power mm -hmm. than the male, which I think is very interesting. We have discussed off uh, off mic that Tolkien was definitely not a feminist, but he certainly does give his female characters in the Silmarillion, where we see more female characters than in any of his other works, kind of this creative power that doesn't belong to the male sphere. You know, they don't have a sun or a moon, but uh, Varda creates the stars and Yavanna creates all living, growing things on earth. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, male Valar just don't have that. You know, Ayule is the blacksmith. He can create from what is already there, but he's not actually like producing anything new. Right. And I think that's very interesting, sort of this feminine creative impulse that's built into the Valier in a way that it's not in the Valar. And Valier, just for Tolkien, is the female form. <laughs> of, of course. course. There yeah. must be a feminine <laughs> form of the word. Right. No, I think that's a really important point, is they have the generative power, which I think also fits with Tolkien's own sort of conceptualization of, of the world, too. That, yeah, yeah, know. his kind of essentialism was mm -hmm. kind of his... If we want to put him in a feminist camp, it would be essentialism, uh, although he's probably turning over in his grave <laughs> as I utter those words. <laughs> um, but kind of this idea that women have a have a power that's different from mm -hmm. men, but it's still power in its own right. Right. Um, and I also think, you know, the creative, the creative impulse, especially that life-giving kind of creative impulse is often assigned to female right. because obviously they are the bearers of life within them. So, you know, I think Tolkien is kind of touching on that specific sort of power with these female characters. Unfortunately, there are kind of only two powerfully creative females, but we're gonna spend a long time talking about a third very powerful female that often gets overlooked That's a right. little later in the episode. I mean, I truly, I still truly do not know what to say about this section in a lot of ways. It's like baffling and weird to me. And I, think, I no. you know, it's, uh, I have theories, but they're all partial theories. And I really don't know what to say beyond it's weird. And it like interrupts the story. And I don't know it what does. to do with that. It does. It's frustrating. It's frustrating when you're trying to like read this from a more intellectual 
place right because you don't know how to talk about it in terms of like the kind of literary value or sort of the tradition that it might be coming out of or the creative impulse that might have been fueling Tolkien Mm. to do this I think our best guess like we said is he's kind of trying to make these seem like found tales and so maybe this is just something that someone else produced and it's being slotted in but again because that's fabricated by him and by Christopher we don't really know it's a it's a difficult section and it is I would be willing to bet one of the reasons people stop reading yeah I I truly think this is where I stopped and I don't blame you I don't blame Um, you for that I mean I think I always kind of skimmed this section mm -hmm. but like as you said it is important it's just um not the most engaging and it is really yeah. hard to come to terms with i mean i think for me like the the part that interests me the most weirdly enough is the the first line beneath the title which is oh. account of the valor and Meyer according to the lore of the elder like that sentence is doing a lot of work it's doing <laughs> a, a lot of work. layering happening there right it's account according to and then lore so you have like all these sort of like um nesting kind of elements to this like there's you know like there's this idea that it's been filtered multiple times well yeah because so it's whose account right and then it's according According to to. (laughs) meaning this is not the actual lore of the eldar this is a distillation of that lore by and then lore itself is this diffuse thing right like we don't have a time scale here either. That's what's fascinating to me about because I've been thinking about time a lot. Oh, actually, with this and like we do. I mean, we, I know we do have a larger time scale at work here, but I think what's interesting is in this particular sentence we don't have a time scale. Oh, sure, like as right as yeah. compiled or as right found. Like when in... is this being pulled together? Like yeah, how far removed are we from the events that this is purporting to? And I say events very loosely here because we don't. As I think you said, it's like much more relationship based than event based. These aren't really events. But like, how far are we from this kind of whatever this moment is that that's being recorded here? And I can look in the nature of Middle Earth and see okay. if he says anything because that does outline like timelines. But I think you're right. I my gut instinct is that there is no like place on the timeline where this is happening unless this is like immediately like you know big bang happens this then happens mm-hmm. but then when is when is this being written about right right so like yeah that's what's so interesting to me about this is that we're sort of in this we're telling this story that is itself kind of pulled out of temporality mm-hmm. it's not really concretized that way and then it's being recorded at some point that's also not right temporally situated. Um, Which it could be because we know that Tolkien did have like a timeline for events. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a year in which the ring is destroyed. So we know that he had, right. you know, this, right. this uh, kind of framework of how long years were days were etc so he could have established that and it's not right yeah that's what's really interesting about it just as the sort of timeless zone we're kind of thrust into with this story and yeah it seems deliberate as you're saying like 
or is it or is this just one section where Tolkien wasn't obsessing <laughs> I find it hard to believe there was a section where he wasn't obsessing now I agree he Man. truly as we have said yeah. quite a sicko mm-hmm. yeah um so who are we talking about in this section we meet a lot of faces a lot of faces it's all very beautiful they're all beautiful people <laughs> Cue the Brady Bunch music, and we'll just put up little Absolutely. squares, which with every valor in them. <laughs> um, so the Who's first Nancy? One... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Probably Nessa. <laughs> uh, yeah. So first one we have is Manwe. Manwe is the brethren, the brother. He actually just says brethren. We don't know. Yeah. Maybe they're brothers. I think the assumption is that they are, but. Brethren right. is kind of a looser term. Mm-hmm. So he's somehow kind of related to Melkor. He is the most powerful and he, quote, delights in the winds and the clouds and in all the regions of the air. We do see a little bit of Manwe in The Hobbit and the trilogy. The eagles are his kind of creatures. And that is a big argument for why the eagles do not intercede during the Lord of the Rings. All all of you out there who've been waiting for this discussion, I think it's coming earlier than we expected, but the reason the eagles can't just fly the ring to Mount Doom is it's not, like it's not their job as kind of these servants of Manwe. They can't interfere like that. It's up to, you know, humankind, humanoids, Hobbits are not humans, but whatever, (laughs) to destroy the ring. That's their quest. Pretty shaky answer for why the eagles can't help, but I think that's kind of the mentality there. (laughs) Well, it goes back to what you said, too, about Tolkien's own conception of Iluvatar, too, as sort of this, like, unseen mover. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, it fits in with that. Yeah, and how they can't, how these, you know, higher beings can't impose their own Mm -hmm. will on the lesser beings, so they can't move events in any real particular ways and that eagles would have certainly been doing that right it um, it would have been an intercession by manway which would not have been allowed who's next varda the lady of the stars which is just a great like instagram handle Um, yeah absolutely that's she would she would probably sell crystals um she is hated and feared by Melgar, uh, and she is most loved by the elves, who call her Elbereth. Elbereth. Do we know where we hear Elbereth? She is actually only, she's one of the only uh, Valar mentioned in the trilogy. Really? Can you tell me, can you no, tell me I cannot where? remember. It's, it's been a while. When uh, Frodo is on Weathertop, and the Nazgul are assaulting them, he says Elbereth Gethoniel, which is kind of like a cry to her. And it actually does sort of like not physically damage the Nazgul, but kind of deals some psychic damage. Um, so he invokes her name. Interesting. I, I did not remember that. Huh. Yep. Okay. Very cool. And uh, I think it's interesting. She's hated and feared by Melkor, but we do we know why? I think... Okay, maybe I was reading a little bit into this too much, but like, is it is the kind of is the like underlying implication that like maybe they were like almost an item? Oh, oh, 
like where they i don't know it's because there is like this element it's like well why does he hate her so much i love that idea <laughs> because we know why he doesn't like manwe it's because he's a co-equal mm-hmm. um and we know why he doesn't and he's jealous of aule because he, he has a power to create things and he's the one who's always fixing all the things or trying to fix all the things that Melkor is trying to destroy all the time mm-hmm. so Varda I'm like is 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 it is this like a I mean it does say she knew Melkor from the making of the right. music and rejected him right and yeah he hated her right he got shot down so yeah do we have a little just Melkor's she swiped left it's just uh, broken mm-hmm. and Melkor is not over it he hates and fears her though which is That's, so yes. interesting because yeah. she never wields any like destructive power but he's fearful of her maybe it's because he kind of has like a thing with like light you know yeah like, he kind of lurks in dark places and because she creates the stars which are ever present mm-hmm. even when there is no moon i wonder That's- if that kind of has a there's that kind of implication of like she's always watching the ever-present ex so she and Manwe are a pair they're a couple Mm. Melkor is Mm. rejected look it's this classic brother-in-law situation is that classic I don't know yes maybe look it's been a long pandemic I don't know what anyone does anymore the outside world is a mystery to me I'm assuming that that Melkor is just has the hots for her and got shot down and he's mad about it. I mean, I do absolutely love that theory and we are going to live with that in our hearts forever. Speaking of being alone, Elmo, Elmo not Elmo. Elmo <laughs> with a U. He is alone. This is like the second sentence to describe him. Elmo is the lord of waters. He is alone. He is also very powerful. He's, you know, akin to Poseidon. And he actually probably interacts with the children of Iluvatar more than any of the other Valar. You know, we don't see him appear as a character in any other books beyond the Silmarillion, but because he's in the in any body of water, basically, he's there. And so there is kind of this powerful connection between the water and the children of Iluvatar, kind of through Olmo. And he draws them to him. We kind of get a little snippet of like the Legolas impulse. Yes. Legolas gets really obsessed with the sea here um, at this end of the description of Olmo is that anyone who hears the Ulumuri, which is a beautiful word, um, is drawn to the sea and like cannot get it out of their mind. And this is exactly what happens to Legolas in The Lord of the Rings. He hears this call of the sea and he is never able to walk under greenwood again that's right he goes on spring break once and uh and he really loved panama beach he did. all right so we have omo friend of elves and men um and then we have is it aule how do you say it aule aule I would guess. I don't know. Aule, Aule is also, I think, acceptable. Mm. We're hitting that E at the end, which is the most important thing. Well, this feller is the smith and master of all crafts. He's the blacksmith. We talked about him a little bit earlier. Um, And Melkor is very jealous of him, uh, mostly because he is always running around trying to fix all the stuff that Melkor is messing up. 
Um, yep. Melkor is essentially a toddler. He <laughs> is knocking down the Tower of Blocks that you built because he wanted you to build the Tower of Blocks. And then you build it again and he knocks it down again. <laughs> I mean, I think what's funny about it too is like how he's introduced is like, he has a little less might than Olmo. But only a little. But only a little, only a smidge. But he has a little less might than Olmo. It's a little. Olmo, I almost call him Olmo, God. It's uh. gonna be rough. <laughs> Um, but the other thing too about Melkor, which is interesting, his jealousy is is because they like are the similar in thought is the mm -hmm. other description. So like yes. in the same way that Manwe and Uluvatar are closest in sort of conceptual views of the world, here we have the blacksmith um, and the toddler who are also the closest <laughs> in views. And I, I guess it speaks to like they both want to create, but it's a they're competing creations. Right? right. Melkor's is sort of this dissonant. Yeah, Melkor wants to make his own creation, whereas Eule's creation is the creation that was in the original song. He's mm -hmm. only creating what Iluvatar has kind of dictated he can and must create, whereas Melkor wants to go against that and just create things that are of his own will. And this is another point where I think there's an interesting overlap between Melkor and sort of the the Satan figure we get, not necessarily in the Bible, but in other works, um, mm -hmm. where Satan becomes sort of this satirical Christ. And I think we have something similar here with, with Melkor being a satirical version of these Valor who are trying to create, and Melkor is sort of making a mockery of it mm -hmm. through his attempt to create as well. Yeah, mockery is the perfect word. The next one on our list is Yavanna. Um, Yavanna is the wife of Eule, and she is the uh, mother She's the Mother Earth figure. She's the giver of fruits and the lover of all things that grow. She definitely has dreads. She lives in Portland and eats a lot of granola. Um, but she is also very powerful. She creates all growing things. And really, she is the most saddened by the destruction of Malcor because she it's it's really beautiful. I mean, it's really beautiful how kind of affected she is by the destruction of the natural world. And I do think this comes from Tolkien's own kind of beautiful connection to the environment and the way he really was upset by kind of the way that uh, modernization destroyed these pastoral areas in England that he was connected with. I think Yavanna really has like a a certain piece of Tolkien in her. Absolutely. Um, and she's she's like throughout nature too, which is really interesting. So even though like Almo is the sea, like she still has that connection to the natural world there even. I think there's the implication that that she sort of is diffuse everywhere, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're gonna keep we're gonna try to zoom through the rest yeah, of this right. list. Yeah, the rest they get decreasingly important also for the most part. So there's Arome who's the a uh, hunter of monsters and fell beasts. He's kind of a rough and tumble guy. He's uh, angry a lot, apparently. <laughs> it's like yeah. his defining characteristic is like he's just pissed. Yeah, because there's also Tolkas who kind of right. serves the same purpose, but Tolkas is like joyful and like, like a, I mean, really a Thor figure. He's kind of just like a joyful dummy oaf who like goes and beats up Melkor for everyone. Whereas Arome uh, has a little more purpose to what he does he's a hunter he's a like he's out with his hounds uh but yeah he's angry and serious whereas Tolkis is always laughing <laughs> he's like punching Melkor and just like 
laughing. There's Mando. He's the keeper of the houses of the dead, which we'll talk about a lot when we talk about elves. So we'll yeah. talk about the significance of these. Um, he's the brother of the next two, Nyanna and Lorian. And actually, Mando's and Lorian are not their real names. Oh uh, <laughs> that's just where they live. So yes. Mando's is actually Namo, and Lorian is Irmo. But we rarely call them that. They're Mando's and Lorian. <laughs> Nyanna is their sister. She is the weeper. We're going to talk about her um, at the end of the episode. She's really, really important and very, very unique. She's not derivative of, I think, any other kind of deity that we see here. I think we can draw a lot of lines between other mythologies and a lot of these figures that Tolkien is creating, but Nyana is very unique, and her purpose is very important, even though I think most people read this and they're like, this woman just cries. Okay, next. <laughs> I mean, relatable, but still. Next. <laughs> next. I want more of that laughing, punching guy. Yeah, and then we have we have Esta, Esta, Esta. I don't know. My Latin is creeping in, so I'm not sure if, if Tolkien intends that or not. But um, uh, she's a Esta. She has Esta, a yeah. umlaut. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Um, she's the healer of hurts and weariness. She wears gray, and rest is her gift. Sounds um, great. Yeah, honestly, honestly so, me today. Sign me up. Yeah, sign me up. Uh, she walks not by day, but sleeps upon the island in the tree-shadowed lake of Lorelin. I mean, it sounds great. Of the Valor, sounds like great. to be possibly probably her. Probably her. Yeah. <laughs> and she's the so. wife of Lorian Irmo. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And then we have, we only have a couple left, right? We have, um, yep. we have Vanna, who's the younger sister of Yavanna, creative. Um, and she has similar kind of relationship to nature, just not as. Not as grand. Yeah. Flowers yeah. open when she passes. And that's. That's pretty much it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Nessa, who's the sister of Arome, she loves to run and dance. This is the wife of Tolkas. Um, she kind of has a special connection with deer. She's sort of our Artemis figure, um, but not a hunter. And then uh, Veare, who is the weaver. Um, she is our Arachne. In a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, she's weaving the story of time in the halls of the dead, which is, she's the wife of um, Mandos. And I think she does also kind of present an important figure that we don't often consider as yeah. being very important, sort of the chronicler yeah. of time. Yeah, I mean, she's in the background, I guess, a lot. I mean, that's the whole mm -hmm. sort of idea. Yeah, she doesn't, she, she never really acts, but she's right. doing important work. Yeah, I love Which the I think description. Is a lot of us. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I love the description of her, right? You know, she weaves all things that have ever been in time into her storied webs. So I mean, mm -hmm. she's this storyteller figure too, in an interesting yeah. way. But and then, so that's it for the Valar and the Valiar. There are nine originals that were important, minus Melkor's. There are eight, the Eratar, the High Ones of Arda. But that's kind of it. And then he says, "All right, moving on to the next section. We meet the Maiar." Uh, the Maiar are just slightly less in power than the Valar. They're a little more derivative. 
he only introduces us to four of them and only one of them we're going to talk about and it's Olorin and we know him who is that it's our what? good friend Gandalf he's not a conjurer of cheap tricks he's not a conjurer of cheap tricks he's a um, he loves the elves and walked unseen among them in later days he was friends with all the children of Iluvatar and took pity on their sorrows and he especially spends time with Nyanna and learns from her pity and patience and so I think this kind of leads us into this beautiful discussion we're gonna have Aaron's so excited I can see it on his face about Nyanna and her importance as this uh, weeping figure in kind of the the greater world of middle earth um she is our favorite valar yeah i think she By wasn't far. mine at first By i was far. i was the person who was like what is the point of her <laughs> but the more i read the more i love her and kind of this beautiful almost we could call it like passive power that yes. she possesses to really hit those that alliteration hard I like her not just because she's a spooky chick, but that is one reason. But she's really interested because her sort of thing, like wherever everyone else is sort of given lordship or mastery over a particular aspect of nature, of the world, of the sea, um, she is not so much a lord and master, but she is acquainted with grief. That's sort of her description, which um, if you are remotely familiar with your bible you'll notice actually a direct lift um from isaiah which is just which is surprising because tolkien works so hard to keep us away from which is surprising because Aaron isn't yeah. acquainted with his bible uh, i'm not but uh, i i am acquainted with that line <laughs> go on sorry yeah so it's it's from isaiah it's old testament but it is about the messiah um so it is interesting that Tolkien chooses that line like he knows it clearly he knows sure. where it's coming from and he he gives that line to her which is actually the thing that kind of first made me clock her as something more than just the sad girl yeah. <laughs> just basically yeah. like sort of how she's initially described it's like she's just sad all the time sad all the time and um, she was spookier she initially yes. was conceived of as kind of this hell figure if you're familiar with hell in Norse mythology um, she so Mandos gathered the dead elves to him, whereas uh, Nyanna was kind of did the same thing for humans. Um, and she was really spooky. She sat in her black hall that was uh, the ceiling was made of bats' wings and the columns were made of volcanic basalt. And like she was very metal. And then Tolkien toned that down a little bit, but still kept her really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Her significance isn't really super well understood, I think, unless you understand kind of like the importance of evil and the importance of grief in the world for Tolkien. And Aaron, you mentioned kind of in our in earlier discussion, you have kind of notes here about catharsis. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think this kind of comes into that beautifully. We talked last time about how evil is built into the world. It's there from the very beginning, you know, there's no fall that like establishes evil. It's just part of the song. It's natural, but so is grief. Nyanna's part of the song is the only one that's mentioned besides Melkor's ever. 
that she kind of wove melancholy into the music of creation. And I think in a world where there is evil, there has to be grief. Like you can't have one without the other. And I think this is where catharsis comes in. If you want to discuss that a little bit and like why that's so important when you have, you know, bad things that happen in the world. Like, why do you need to have grief and catharsis? Yeah, because, right. So in, in other words, she, yeah, she has a much more central role to Tolkien's universe than, yeah, initially one would perceive. And it's precisely because she is is the one who feels the most. Yeah, the, she's the harms of the empath. world. Yeah, yeah, she, she feels the harms of the world um, to such a degree, I think that it's, I mean, I think the implication is that it's like almost too much. Mm-hmm which is maybe that's where I was thinking of catharsis essentially it's because yeah. like it's there's this level of her sort of perceiving every like it says that she perceives every hurt to Arda that's yeah. been committed by Melkor so it's like almost this this extent of like it would be like if we kind of perceived everyone's emotions around us like that would just be like you couldn't function essentially mm-hmm. but but she's able to the implication is that she's able to sort of not master grief but she's able to hold it yes which is a vessel right which is in in sort of this in Tolkien's world though that's like an incredibly powerful ability I think Mm -hmm. the implication there is that you know this is unusual to be able to be both this acquainted with grief but also to be able to function um, in the world while you're aware of sort of all the wrongs that are happening in it Mm -hmm. so rather than kind of looking for an outlet or rather looking for an escape sort of a cathartic kind of response the idea here is that she seems to dwell in that space Mm -hmm. um and as you said yeah she's a container for it um, for all that grief in the world so it's just it's really interesting to me too though that like she's not the master of it like there's this idea that you can't actually no one can sort of have power over grief yeah (laughs) like it is this thing that masters you even if you're a valar you are subjected to it in the same way and maybe you can handle it better but you you still can't sort of control it in the way and like shove it off somewhere else or dissipate it or redirect it. Like, it's just a matter of sort of absorbing it, Mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, it does make sense. Don't worry. (laughs) I just, that's the thing about her that's so fascinating to me though, is that she's the only one who does not sort of have this mastery component or the mastery is in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not again, like this directed thing it's just this ability to sort of endure Mm -hmm. which I think is so important kind of throughout you know that's a thread throughout the whole you know kind of legendarium of Tolkien is the endurance despite evil and grief you know we've talked about the cycle like the cyclical nature of evil um, for Tolkien and I think now we see kind of the way to cope with the cyclical nature of evil is to grieve it. (laughs) Um, And I think it's important in kind of his previous writings and his early drafts of the Lost Tales, he actually had Mayanna be the sister of Malkor, which I think is really interesting and really, 
it makes me kind of sad that he didn't keep that because I think it emphasizes the importance of the relationship between evil and grief or like, you know, bad <laughs> and like grieving what is bad. Um, I do think it takes away kind of a little bit of the importance of that connection for him. So, and actually she like, not only, like you said, she doesn't have mastery over anything. So I think we tend to think of her as like not a very powerful figure. You know, she just takes on the grief of the world, which in itself is incredibly powerful, mm -hmm. right? Like you said, imagine feeling the emotions of every single person around you or just like the sad emotions of every right. single person around you, right? She's not feeling their happiness. right? But I think like that makes her very powerful but she's also the only Valier that's not paired. She also is alone, which is un like unique. And I think does kind of establish her as sort of a powerful figure who doesn't need like to have, you know, a quote spouse. I don't even know if it's like made clear that they're espoused or not, but a partner yeah. to like function or to enhance her powers. And then I think this connection between her and Gandalf is really important because, you know, I mentioned earlier in the episode, none of the Valar really are present in the trilogy. But if we look at, at Gandalf Olrin and kind of how he influences elves and men and hobbits and dwarves, throughout the Hobbit and the trilogy, we actually see Nyanna's influence. And this is especially kind of clear in Gandalf's pity. And it's important to understand for Tolkien, pity was kind of synonymous with mercy. So this is all kind of from an article. It's in this book, Perilous and Fair, uh, which is a collection of essays about uh, women in Tolkien's life and in his works. So it's called The Power of Pity and Tears, The Evolution of Nyanna in the Legendarium by Christine Larson. So she talks about kind of these big instances of Gandalf showing pity that really like changed kind of the course of events. The big one is his pity towards Gollum and then how he teaches Frodo to have pity towards Gollum, right? Gollum creates a major plot point. <laughs> Um, and he would not have if Gandalf and Frodo hadn't showed him mercy and Bilbo. Mm -hmm. And so really through Gandalf, we see Nyanna affecting Middle-earth more than any of the other Valar, even though it's not her direct hand. And oftentimes it's not even Gandalf. It's kind of him giving like a gentle nudge or just like lecturing someone. <laughs> and then I know we've talked about like religion. We don't want to draw too much on like this is an allegory but Larson does make a connection with um the Virgin Mary which I think is really important and here I think one place where we could say like this was certainly an influence for Tolkien and this seems significant just in kind of elevating her from that status of just being like a passive weeping figure for Tolkien as a Catholic Mary would have posed like she would have been powerful. She's the most powerful heavenly figure for Catholics besides, you know, Christ and God. Maybe, in, honestly, in some ways she's probably more powerful 
Um, and so for Tolkien, this would have had significant power. And then this isn't a comparison that Larson makes, but I also think that Niana's kind of an intercessor, which Mary functions for, uh, as for a lot of Catholics. Um, she intercedes for Melkor actually at one point when he is like, you know, defeated and dragged back to Valar. She's the one who intercedes on his behalf. Um, and then she also intercedes for Muriel before the Valar in the Silmarillion. So she does serve this function as like an intermediary. And I think it's because she, like you said, she has kind of this understanding of human nature. She can be empathetic and she does know what it feels like to feel human. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of implication that the rest of the Valar, maybe besides Olmo, are kind of passive towards, they love the children of Iluvatar, but they're sort of passive towards them. They don't, they don't understand what it's like to be one. And Nyana has the power to understand how mm -hmm. they feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we get the, the sense for a lot of the Valor that, right, they, they care for the children, but they don't, but they are precisely that, they're children, right? On some level, they're not comprehensible. Mm -hmm. in the same like it's like right. their cares and their concerns are not immediate to the Valar in the same way that I think they are for Nana and, and Ulma right they seem to be the ones that recognize moments of need or moments of pain or however you want to mm -hmm. phrase that and I mean I think it's significant too that that the Cimmerillion tells us that Nana is more powerful than the healer mm -hmm. so there's something here that suggests like we I, I think the immediate thought would be that the healer is the one with the greater power right mm -hmm. that if you can sort of repair the damage whatever that is whether it's physical or mental or emotional or environmental or whatever right if you can do that sort of repair work that would make you more powerful than just the person who feels for the damage but mm -hmm. but Tolkien's saying that no it's actually this act of feeling yeah and maybe Tolkien too understanding that like there are some hurts that can't be healed. Mm -hmm. I mean, having exactly. gone through his his war experience and then, you know, even just living through World War II, I think he did have an understanding that sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, no amount of healing is going to hurt or to, sorry, no amount of healing is uh, going to fix the right. trauma, you know, that he experienced and others experienced. But to just to be able to, release that in emotion to draw back to catharsis like you mm -hmm. said like that is a healing in its own way i think and i think what you said about pity is really important too that it it provides the closest lens we have for understanding evil i think mm -hmm. in, a, in a in a bizarre way it's it's the closest we can come to terms or come to grips with sort of what evil means and what it looks like and how like to come back to the question of choice too right like how it's made out of choices rather than i mean melkor is the only one who's like seems to be inherently evil mm -hmm. and even he made that choice at the mm. beginning i mean iluvatar didn't create him that way he just created him with free will and he chose to be evil right so and it it is pitiable i mean it is sad mm -hmm. again i think probably drawing on Tolkien's Catholic, you know, upbringing, you know, the idea of mercy is really important. And 
we see it throughout. And I think Nyana really is kind of the, she's like the, the, the font of mercy really yes, yeah. where, where we learn, you know, we learn that from her or it can be learned from her. That's where Gandalf learns pity and patience. She rocks. She's very cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think she's even cooler without the Batwing ceiling. I mean, I like the Batwing ceiling. I do too, but... <laughs> very cool. You imagine Peter Jackson would have lost his mind if he'd been able to, like, tell that story. Oof. Oof. He should. Well, I don't know. After no, the no, 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 I don't know no, if no, I trust no, him. No, 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 no. Um, is that it? I think it is. Next episode will be in two weeks. We'll be reading the first and second chapters of the Silmarillion. Actually, maybe getting into some like plot points. No, really? <laughs> yeah, Aaron's so shocked. Until then, keep reading, keep listening, and we will talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening to us, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Songs and Tales, A Literary Guide to Middle-Earth is produced by Clara McHugh and Aaron Babcock. Intro and outro music is by Joe McHugh. The podcast's artwork is by Jenny Calais. You can find us on Twitter at Songs and Tales Pod, on Instagram at Songs and Tales Pod, and can email us at, you guessed it, songsandtalespod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Wanted to see how long you keep doing that. I was gonna keep going. <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead.